Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow The Essential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Watch episodes on our YouTube channel and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now here is this week's episode of The Essential Church Podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I want to take you to a conversation that Pastor Glenn Packiam and I had recently with Philip Yancey. Uh, many of you know that Philip Yancey is one of the most prolific authors in the evangelical world of the last hundred years, award-winning books, 25 books, I think, uh, including some that many are very familiar with, The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace, Soul Survivor. Last year, he came out with his memoir uh, called Where the Light Fell, which is a look at his early years and how they shaped him. And uh, it's really his coming to grips in many ways with the complexity of his youth. We talk a lot with Philip about what it looks like to deconstruct while also staying tethered to Jesus and to gospel and to church. He's got some great things to say about that. And he ends this interview really by giving a charge to us church leaders about the church that he dreams about. Um, and his thoughts are very poignant and uh, I think timely for us. So without further commentary from me, here's to the interview. Well, we're excited to have um, Philip Yancey on the program today, uh, one of the most prolific authors of the last hundred years of evangelical Christianity, author of 25 books, including uh, a handful that did really, really well, uh, including The Jesus I Never Knew, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, Soul Survivor, and other books like that. And uh, Philip uh, released in the last few months uh, his memoir, Where the Light Fell, which uh, Glenn and I had a chance to read. And uh, I thought this was one of the very good memoirs that I've ever read. And it was such a such a beautiful read. Uh, given all that we already know about you and all that we've said, it was neat to kind of look into your life a little <laughs> bit. So, Philip, uh, we're grateful that you're with us today. I would just love to start by asking this question. You know, when I think about the body of work that you've put out, all of your writing in some way kind of has a memoir-like quality about it, that there's always been this search for you of kind of the meaning of your own life and the essence of the gospel. And so you've been pretty open about your own experiences, but now we actually have a full-length treatment of you kind of going back over your history and making sense of it. Talk to us for a moment about like what prompted this project. Um, wh why now to get mm. back into, to, to take a sojourn through your history and to try to trace out the, the lineaments of grace in it. Mm. Well, you're right. All of my books do have, they're all written in the first person. I call them personal pilgrimage books. Mm -hmm. They're me trying to come to terms with faith. I suppose now you would call it uh, reconstructing faith, deconstructing, and then reconstructing faith. We didn't use those words back when I was going through mm -hmm. it. I used books. So I knew that the version of Christianity I got in this very fundamentalist church in the South, racist, angry, legalistic, mm -hmm. couldn't be couldn't be right. And yet I knew there was something worth salvaging there. And one by one, 
starting, you can tell my pilgrimage because I started out with books like Where's God When It Hurts? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Disappointment, Disappointment with God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's kind of where I was, right? Yeah. And then I had a, what I call a cocoon period of writing books with uh, Dr. Paul Brand, mm-hmm. who influenced me more than anybody else. He's a, a brilliant surgeon who worked among actually the lowest people on the entire planet. Those would be the Dalits, formerly yes. called Untouchables in India, who yes. had leprosy. I mean, that's as low as you get. Yeah. They're kicked out of their homes, their villages. They uh, There was only one orthopedic surgeon in the world with 12 million leprosy patients, and that was Dr. Paul Brand. And yet he was a, a buoyant, joyful, uh, grateful, humble Christian. And for 10 years, I wrote his story, and that gave that gave me a chance to let my faith Hmm. kind of come together. And then I was finally ready to write books about Jesus and grace and prayer, <laughs> kind of the center of the Christian life, this spiral going inwards. I started way out here in the margin, yeah. mm. still in recovery from an unhealthy church yeah. and then spiraled in toward, toward the center. Hmm. Why did I decide? Well, as, as you know, having read the book, there are some stories I have not told. Hmm. And a lot of them were family stories. And I waited because I knew that I would be writing about areas that would hurt people. Yeah. And, uh, and, and also, the other thing that occurred to me was, I thought we had solved some of these issues. I grew up in the yeah. 1960s, yeah. and everything was up for grabs in the 60s. Yeah. You know, the sexual revolution, yeah. and we were, we were understanding global poverty for the first time, racism. I was in Atlanta, the civil rights movement was in the news every day. Mm. Uh, anti-war protests in the streets, you know, we... And then we kind of emerged out of that. And I thought, well, we've learned a few things. And then here we are, <laughs> uh, you know, 40 years later, re- redoing the, the same, same stuff. patterns of yeah. people marching in the streets and the racism and in, in front page news again. And, and the world right now is, is in turmoil. Uh, I, of course, I didn't know that when I was writing the book, but it, it just seemed, huh, hmm. I've been around a long time and and I think I need to go back and try to put it together for myself. If mm-hmm. anybody else wants to go along with the ride, fine. Mm-hmm. I'm so intrigued, Philip, because you're you're right. There are these contours that were in the cultural dynamics in the '60s that we're we're retracing some of those contours again, and albeit with different complications and 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 all of that. And so we have a fresh sort of crisis of faith with particularly with younger people today, and. Now here you are with the vantage point of looking back over those decades, and as you see it kind of bubbling up a second time, what do you say to young people who want to walk away from faith? Let's start with faith before we talk about church. Mm -hmm. Who want to walk away from faith because the version of faith that they've seen is overly politicized, it's uh, judgmental, it's fundamentalist, it's racist— how how do how, what would you say to your younger self or to these young people uh, about that tension? I've been in many conversations with people. In fact, I I often start them, or I'll be in an airplane seat and start talking to the person next to me, or in the lobby of a waiting room at the at the driver's bureau or something like that, hmm. and uh, and they'll inevitably say, "Now, are you retired? <laughs> what do you do for a living?" And I say, well, I'm not retired. I'm a writer. Writers don't really retire. We just run out of words. And um, I, I, what do you write about? I write about issues of faith. I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm exploring my, my own faith and trying to understand it, put it together. 
And then they'll usually tell me, well, yeah, yeah, I used to be into religion for a while, but uh, it just didn't work for me. Oh, mm. you want to talk about it? And they'll tell me a story, much like you've described, of a, an angry church or a political stance or, mm. or just a negative experience mm. with the way a gay person was judged or even a divorced person was judged. Mm. And I kind of laugh and say, oh, you know, it's, it's much worse than that. <laughs> and they say, wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian writer. I said, well, I am. And I've spent my life trying to retrieve what was worth retrieving. But it would be a pretty bad trade to forfeit an opportunity to relate directly to the Lord of the universe, the God who gave us this planet, because of some way you were treated 30 years ago. You know, that'd be a bad trade. Yeah. Mm. And so I've spent my life trying to figure out what is worth keeping, what's worth salvaging, and what's not. Mm. And and that they kind of relax and say, well, tell me more. You know? mm. and, yeah. and then I, I say, well, you know, I grew up with God, an image of God as a, a scowling yeah. super cop in the sky, just trying to keep people from having fun. And it took me a long time, but I realized that was a, complete misrepresentation of who God is. God, mm. The heart of the universe is not a frown. It's not a scowl. It's mm. a smile. Mm. The story, the story of history mm. is the story of God's love. And it took me a long time to experience that and really feel it, but there's nothing like it. Mm. And and often they'll just kind of relax and tell me their story. Mm. Last I heard, I mean you guys probably know this stat, but uh last I heard there are between 25 and 30 million Ex-evangelicals, right? People who were raised in that environment. They went to Young Life Club. Yep. They had summer camps, yep. and and many of them have wistful memories of that. Mm -hmm. You know, right. it's kind of nostalgia when you start talking about it. You know, they lean back and mm -hmm. yeah, I had this youth director, and they start telling stories. And and I wrote this book where the life fell because I wanted to reach those people, the excellence, yes. uh, because my my reasons for becoming an ex were actually stronger than most of theirs. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, I was in a pretty bad church situation we, and yet uh, I did emerge and, mm -hmm. and discovered the love and grace of God. And, and it's like nothing else, as you know. Yeah. You're right about, about those numbers. I mean, the dropout rates from, you know, 10 years ago were somewhere in the 30% mm -hmm. range and now it's in the 60% range. And, uh, Barna has those stats on that. But but Philip, for people who haven't yet read the memoir, and we encourage people to pick mm -hmm. it up, read it, or listen to it on audiobook, which is you reading it. I love doing it that way as well. Tell tell them about the story of the vow that kind of mm -hmm. made this dark cloud, formed this dark cloud over your whole life of, of why you imagined a God with a, with a scowl. Right. Yeah, the story starts when I was just a year old. So, of course, I have no memories. My my father uh, was a victim of the current pandemic. It wasn't coronavirus. Mm -hmm. It was polio. polio. Mm -hmm. In many ways, even more fearsome because it mostly attacked children. Mm -hmm. And there are still a lot of senior citizens walking around with post-polio syndrome who went through that as children. But my father got uh, a pretty bad case. He was only 23 years old. Mm -hmm and had been married four years, had two children, my brother and, and me. And uh, he woke up one day completely paralyzed. And they called the ambulance, took him to a hospital, and they said, there's polio, there's only one place you can treat him, and that's a charity hospital in downtown Atlanta. So he spent the next more than two months in that hospital in an iron lung. I mean, he was really paralyzed, could not even breathe on his own. So his lungs were forced through this vacuum to 
push in, push out. And he couldn't move his neck. He just lay there look, staring at the ceiling. He couldn't turn the pages of a book. There were no televisions in the hospital like that. He and my mother were planning to go to the mission field. They were going to go to Africa. They had raised support. In fact, they had several thousand people on their mailing list agreeing to pray for them and support them. And the people closest to him, this is in Atlanta, Georgia, the people closest to them decided, surely God doesn't want to take him. Surely he's not meant to spend the rest of his life either paralyzed or dying of polio. So let's pray for healing. Hmm. And they became convinced that he would be healed miraculously. And so against all medical advice, they removed him from the iron lung. Now, this is a story I didn't know until I was in college. I was about 18 years old, and I came across an old newspaper from the Atlanta Constitution, mm -hmm. and it was written that next week. And the story was apparent miracle, uh, pastor, missionary removed from an iron lung, and he's, he claims that he's feeling some sensations he hadn't felt before, and the chiropractic doctor hope he'll be able to walk soon. And a picture of my mother feeding him. And this was a shock to me. I didn't know that story. I knew that he died because they grew up without a father. And I looked at the newspaper clipping, and it was written nine days before his death. Mm -hmm. So he died, and, mm -hmm. and suddenly things clicked into place. Because mm -hmm. what, what I did know was that my mother told us that after he died, she made a vow to God. Yeah. Her story was the story of Hannah giving her, mm. her son Samuel to God in the temple. And she said, uh, my, I've lost my husband, and now I'm giving you two boys to replace him mm. as missionaries in Africa. Mm. And this was a very solemn vow. In fact, several times, both my brother and I had uh, almost a convulsive type uh, episodes where with pneumonia or, mm -hmm. or asthma, we would be thrashing on the ground. And, and she claimed that she would pray each time before taking us to a hospital, Lord, if you don't want them to replace their father as a missionary in Africa, then go ahead and take them now. Wow. Well, when I read that newspaper article as a college student, I realized the momentum, the passion behind that, because she had participated in his death, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, these were well-meaning people. Yeah. They loved him. They wanted him to be healed, certainly. Yeah. But they okay. made a theological error. Yeah. They mm -hmm. took into themselves a prerogative that they don't, we don't have the right to decide who's going to die, when. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine the what my mother went through. I wrote a book called Disappointment with God. In her theology, you can't be disappointed with God. Right. So you can't blame God. So she had to find some way to compensate, some way to mm. overcome this mm. terrible thing that had happened. And she poured it out on us. And we felt kind of special about that when we were told the story of Hannah. We thought, oh, we're, yeah, for sure. we're, we're going to be serving God. But normal teenagers, you know, we, we weren't fitting the script that she had. And right. she got more and more uh, uptight and shrill and unbalanced in a lot of ways. And that vow that started as a holy vow, sacred vow, became a kind of curse, especially as it worked out uh, on my brother, because he, he went a, a very different path than she had in mind for him. And uh, the consequences were pretty severe. Phil, I want to ask you, um, 
You know, when I think, when I read your memoir, when I think about your story, even as you're sharing now, I think about the paradox of how there's so much pain inside the story and there's so much frustration and so much that you want to push off of inside the story and yet you wouldn't be who you are apart from the experiences that you had. It's all of us have to come to grips with that. And when I think about the ex-evangelical movement and all of those that are deconstructing faith and walking away, I think what's troubling to me about it on a human level is that there is this jettisoning of mm -hmm. everything that was prior to a decision that was made. And so we can only find wholeness. This is sort of the presupposition is that we only find wholeness as we run away from all that. But I don't think that that's true. I think that peace comes, wholeness comes when somehow we learn to make peace with where we've come from. So, but that's not an easy thing to do. It takes a great deal of courage. I'm just curious what you find yourself saying to people who are wanting mm -hmm. to run away from all of it about making peace with where they came from. Yeah. I had the example of my older brother. He's two years older. And he took, we grew up in the same family, grew up in the same church, but he took a different tack yeah. in, uh, in relating to it. So he, he, he was musically almost supernaturally gifted. Mm -hmm. And he, he ended up going to Wheaton Conservatory of Music. And that inflamed my mother. She was enraged about that because yeah. she saw Wheaton as this liberal school and put a curse on him, really, for going to Wheaton. Mm -hmm. He ended up dropping out his last semester. So he's never finished college and becoming one of Atlanta's original hippies. This mm -hmm. is around 1968, and he would hang out in Piedmont Park and and do, you know, drop acid, LSD at, at the time, and in, in many ways kind of fried his brain. And then he moved to California and tried to break every rule in the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I didn't tell everything, but I told some pretty shocking stories about him. Um, and and I saw what that did to him. You know, when, when we're attracted to, to things... Um, I think it's Tim Keller who says at first an, an idol promises everything, but eventually it promises nothing and, and it owns you. It takes everything. You know, it, everything. It, promise, yeah. it takes everything away from you, right? Yeah. And he struggled with all sorts of addictions to drugs, and yeah. cigarettes and alcohol and attempted suicide several times. And so I had that living illustration of someone who has mm -hmm. nothing to nothing to go toward. Right. And one thing I say to people who want to throw it all out is just find something to go toward. You know? yeah, right. uh, and actually what helped me so much was finding healthy Christians like a Dr. Paul Brand. Yeah. And, yeah. and I say, find somebody that, that you really want to be like mm -hmm. when you're 60 years old, mm -hmm. looking back, you know, I want to be like this person. David Brooks writes about the difference between Resume virtues yeah. and legacy virtues. Yeah. Eulogy virtues. And, or eulogy virtues. Legacy, the uh, resume virtues, that's what kind of car you have, mm -hmm. what kind of house you live in, and what kind of degrees do you have, your curriculum vitae. But nobody talks about that at funerals. They don't talk about right. it. He was so smart, he bought <laughs> Apple stock at $100. You know? mm -hmm. They talk about he was a good man, he was kind, he was a family person. Mm -hmm. And... And when you're young, you still have choices. I can either go and and make that my goal, the resume virtues, or or the the eulogy virtues. Mm -hmm. How do I want to be? Mm -hmm. And and the other thing, 
it has struck me because I've been a journalist for almost 50 years now, I guess. And I came up, I've interviewed a lot of people because I've written about pain. I've interviewed a lot of people who've gone through very hard times. Mm -hmm. And this struck me so much when I wrote my own story. Uh, I came up with almost a mantra that pain redeemed impresses me more than pain removed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Pain redeemed. And I've, I've interviewed so many people and, and often it's, it's the hardest things we go through that are most important as we look back. Mm -hmm. uh, when you ask people who survived the Blitz in London, where 3,000 people, as many as died in the World Trade Center, there was like a 9-11 every day for weeks that yeah. many people died. And you say, what was your favorite time of life, older senior citizens? And the majority of them say it was during the Blitz. Mm -hmm because they would go into these subways and they would be visited by the royal family and they would sing patriotic songs and they were defending freedom and democracy for the entire world. It seemed like they were alone mm -hmm. uh, for years. And I mean, I, it's almost, you almost hate to say it, but years from now, when you interview Ukrainians, yeah. mm -hmm. what was your favorite time of life? It, we stood up against yes. people, yes. Mm -hmm. you know, and, these are extreme circumstances. Mine was nothing like that. I didn't go through a war, but I did endure a fair amount of pain. And some of it was psychological, and, and uh, that's what the book is about. Mm -hmm. But when we go through it, we, when we pray, if we pray, we want God to take it away, you know, mm -hmm. change it. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, uh, clearly, as I look back, it's those things that I most resented and wished were not true at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm that formed me huh. god is in the redemption business mm -hmm. you know we never have a problem we never have a promise from god that only good things will happen to you mm -hmm. but we do have a strong promise romans 8 28 that no matter what happens god can use it for good yeah. in you yeah mm -hmm. and you know paul had the right to say that because he spells out some of those things he went through mm -hmm. and a lot of them were bad shipwreck and snake bite mm -hmm. and torture and prison <laughs> and beatings and and yet he could surely toward the end of his life look back and say they were all worked for my own good yeah and we do have that promise that that redeemed those redeemed experiences and mm. in my case in some of these evangelical cases some of those some of those pain issues came out of the church you know mm -hmm. um, and yet god can even use them it's been so valuable to me yeah. as a writer because i i stand on the side of those who aren't sure yeah, you know, yeah. Those who doubt, those who have never really experienced the grace of God, yeah. and and I stand there because I went through it myself. Yeah, it's good. And you, and what a gift your life and ministry has been and continues to be, Philip, because you do that, because you stand with those. I, I want to pivot slightly to that angle about the church. Um, how might pain be redeemed, not just for the individual, but for the church? Can the church grow and learn from its mistakes and from you know the wounds that it's created in others? You, you, um, you. So much of the story is interwoven with the churches that you were part of, and some good and some difficult. Um, this is a forgive the little bit of a flex here, but Philip, you, you, we met at a, a couple of you know board things that we do. So you were kind enough to send me a copy of the book, and you wrote a little thing in it, which I was very grateful and surprised by. But you said you know toward a healthy church, and you underlined the word healthy. And as a pastor, yeah. that it really arrested me. And and then as I listened. 
and read the book, I thought, wow, how mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sober now. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to a bunch of pastors? How do we move toward a healthy church? <laughs> we are at a hinge time in the future of the evangelical church, sure, in the United States. Um, when I was growing up, we, we wanted to be different than people around us. And we express that difference by funny legalism things. You know, we don't go bowling because they serve alcohol there. We don't go roller skating because it looks like dancing. We don't wear jewelry, you know, mm-hmm. women don't wear pants. You know, we had all these rules. And there's nothing wrong with that uh, in, in itself. There are whole cultures like the Amish who take great pride in being separated and defined in, in those ways. Um, it's hard when you're a teenager, when you're going to high school and everybody else gets the, the afternoon off to go to a movie, a Shakespearean movie, and you're not allowed <laughs> to go because my church doesn't believe in movies. Oh you know? um, and then that changed. Hip Christianity moved in, and there aren't that many obvious differences in the way uh, people live externally, the way they dress, the way they wear their hair, uh, jewelry, things like that. But we are going through a time when we have to adjust to the fact that we're not the home team anymore. Yeah. Somebody explained to me, uh, it's kind of like, wait a minute, Christians and evangelicals used to be the home team, and now they're the visiting team, and they're throwing beer cans at us, and they're yelling at us, and <laughs> they think we're a, we're a hostile force in, in American culture. Mm-hmm. And this is new, and some people don't like it, and some people lash out with anger and others like uh, uh, Rod Dreher wrote the Benedict option say we should just pull in and separate from culture and, and, you know, batten down the hatches. And what happened along the way is we got defined by our politics. Mm -hmm. Well, if you read church history, that's always dangerous Mm -hmm. because whenever the church and the state get in bed together, the church loses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we actually, we can see that working out right now. Mm-hmm. When, when the uh, Berlin Wall fell and communism changed, the USSR broke apart, this man, Vladimir Putin, came up and he said, we're going to restore Christian Russia, mm-hmm. holy Russia. Mm-hmm. And so he rebuilt this beautiful cathedral. I've seen it in Moscow, millions of dollars with state funds. Mm-hmm. And the priests, the Orthodox priests, all loved him because... You know, they had been persecuted under communism, and now they're invited to the Kremlin and and treated well. Well, what happened? Well, gradually they tied the noose around every other mission activity, even the Salvation Army groups like that. They kicked them out. You can't operate here. It has to be under the umbrella of the Mother Church. And, of course, that Mother Church is standing side by side with Putin and what he's doing right now in Ukraine. And and that's what so often happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, some in the in the German Nazi church, uh, German Nazi government protested as church members, but not that many. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got Bonhoeffer and a few others, but they were the exception. Mm-hmm. Most of the mainline churches went right along with Hitler. He made he made a lot of sense to them, and he mm-hmm. he manipulated them. Mm-hmm. And and I try to stay away from politics. That's not my field, and it's not. It's not who you support or what party you support. It's it's it, we're always called to live in the city of God, in the city of humanity, mm-hmm. as Augustine put it. Mm-hmm. And 
I remember a story from uh, John Major, who's trying to figure out evangelicals. So he called in the head of the Evangelical Alliance in Britain and said, I, I can't figure out these evangelicals. Are they liberal or conservative? And the head of the Evangelical Alliance says, well, let's look at the positions that are important. We really, uh, we really care for the poor. Well, that's kind of what liberals do that. Yeah, but we believe Jesus is the only way to God. Oh, that's conservative. We uh, support women's rights. Oh, well, that's kind of liberal. But we are against all premarital sex. Oh, that's conservative. And he went down the list and you know, <laughs> half of the stuff ended up on one side and half the stuff ended up on the other side. And why, why can't you be consistent? Mm -hmm. John Major asked. Well, because we don't take our marching orders from the Labor Party or the Conservative Party or the Democrat or Republican Party. Mm -hmm. We take our marching orders for God, Amen. from yeah. God. And um, we have to judge our, our votes and all that by, by what God reveals to us best as we can figure it out. And it's so partisan, it's so divided now, that we're, mix, we're missing that, uh, that dance that we need to do to figure out hmm. how can I hold to these values that are very important to me and yet hold to these values which seem to be important to the alternative. You know, the hmm. politics is an adversary sport. Hmm. And in our own time, we've gotten people from both sides who use words like, half the country is despicables or the other uh, Donald Trump, he used the word deranged human scum. Mm. And the, the, the dialogue has gotten so crass mm. and so adversarial. Christians need to stand up against that. Martin Luther King used to say, yeah, we've got to fight injustice, but we use different weapons. We use the weapons of grace. Good. Good. And, and I want pastors, I don't care so much what they believe, but I want them to show the style of Jesus who said, mm. love your enemies, pray for yes. those who persecute you. Yes. I don't hear anybody saying that. Yes. And we really need to, we need to stand out and show a different way. Our country needs us to. And then we need to, we need to just accept the fact that we're not the home team anymore. Mm. And, and so uh, certain things that we took for granted for the last hundred years or so in our, in our country as Christians, we can't take for granted anymore. Mm -hmm. And and so we need to stand out as what Karl Barth called uh, uh, a sign of contradiction. Yeah. You know, we're in this celebrity culture, this sex saturated culture, this um, greed oriented culture. And we need to be, we need to be a sign of contradiction so that like mm -hmm. happened with the early church, people will say, huh, I like the way they live That's better good. than the way I live. You know? Philip, I want to get you, if you don't mind, if I want to, I want to get you to expand on this for just a second. I've been thinking as you've been talking uh, about the verse in Psalm 45 that says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer and you are a ready writer. And now here you are with your words, just kind of painting a picture for us. And, and this is what I want you to do. I want you in a couple minutes here to paint, paint a picture of the church that you lay awake at night dreaming about the kind of church that you want to see, the kind of church that you hope that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will inhabit. And you're talking to a couple mid-career pastors and whoever else is listening to this podcast. What, what do you ache for for us in terms of leading that? Paint the picture of the church of the future. What do you see? 
I've been privileged to see the church at its best by traveling overseas. If I only saw the American church, I would I would have some problems. Mm -hmm. But I've been to places like the Philippines and Africa and India, places where the church has has extreme minority status. And they're not going to convert the whole country. So, and they're not going to clean up the whole country and they're not going to pass laws that they think are important. So what do they do? Well, in India, for example, uh, when I first started working with Dr. Brand, things have changed now, but um, there were only 2% of people in India who identified as Christians, but they were taking care of 25 to 30% of the healthcare in the country. Wow. The government has since then taken over some of those hospitals, so it's not that high anymore. But if you ask the Indian villager, uh, what's a Christian? They, they wouldn't know. They say, well, I, I don't know. But every week this van comes and it's got a cross on the side painted there. And they heal my wounds and they mm -hmm. treat my illnesses and they, they give me malaria medicine. I, I guess that's what a Christian is. And that's not the whole gospel, but that's the way it starts. And there's so much good happening in the church now. There are people right now, as we're talking, who are visiting prisoners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, who are running homeless shelters, who are putting together sandwiches for, mm -hmm. for the poor, and all sorts of things like that. And the, the church, if you, if you just remove the church from the United States, it'd be a very different place. Mm -hmm. Half of all the volunteer activity and more than half of all the money for things like that comes through the church. Robert Putnam, Harvard, mm -hmm. proves that. Yep. And that's part of what I, it's part of what I, I want to see, but it's not the whole thing. It's not just a social gospel thing. Sure. It's a, a Christian is someone who has more time with you, who, someone who, who you can feel comfortable exposing things with, mm. talking about what you really believe, someone who will listen to you and not just snap with an answer that contradicts you, but someone who thoughtfully considers what you have to say. A Christian is someone who orients life not toward how am I viewed by the people around me, but I guess I'd put it this way. Did I do anything to please God today? Mm. You know, when I, when Jesus was on earth, God, the father spoke audibly three, maybe four times, depending. And he said exactly the same thing every time he said, this is my beloved son mm -hmm. in whom I am well pleased. And, and a Christian to me, and this is a challenge for me, sometimes I lie in bed at night and ask myself, did I do anything that gave God pleasure today? Yeah. And it's just the orientation of I'm, I'm being pulled in all these different directions by the culture, by the world around me. But did I do anything that was a sign of contradiction, that, that yeah. wasn't a selfish act, that, that I did to please the God who gave me life? Amen. Um, so there's that. There's that personal, direct, relating to God aspect, and then, and then relating to the culture around us by caring for the people Jesus mm -hmm. cared about. They were the marginalized. They were the poor. They were the sinners. Mm -hmm. you know, every God loves good people is not good news. Every religion <laughs> believes that. God loves bad people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's radical. Mm -hmm. God loves sinners, mm -hmm. and Jesus was so clear about that. I came. I came for the sick. You know, I didn't come for the well. Mm. I came for the needy, not the ones that were already satisfied. Mm. And uh, we should we should be following in Jesus' steps. Um, so those two things that that vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension yes. uh, is so important. 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, <laughs> yeah. mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I feel like yeah, I heard that somewhere. You're such a gift, Philip. Thank you so much Thank for spending you. the time with us. Thank you. The book is Where the Light Fell. We hope that you all will grab it. And uh, God bless you, Philip. We're praying for you and grateful for your life and witness. Thank yeah, you for all that you've you. done for the church and all you're doing for the church. Well, you guys are the ones in the front lines. You know, I sit in my basement office and have a nice view of a creek out the side and <laughs> and play with words all day. But uh, if if I could, if we can work together, if I can give you something that you can use in your own yeah. person-to-person ministry, that's that's real team. Yeah.